Okay, so Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 1. Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes that what the Lord did at Baal Pur. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Pur. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as the body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You saw no form of any kind that day. The Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creatures that move along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, 
and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. Thank you, Daisy. Little quiz to start you with today. Uh, how many words do you think you see in an average day? Not how many do you read, but how many words pass by your eyeballs in the course of a given normal day? Quick chat to the person next to you, see if you can give me a number. Okay, that'll do. Oh, I've unleashed you now. Um, okay, so the answer to the question is, I don't know, I don't know your life, but um, it's, been, it's been calculated that the average internet user, someone who perhaps uses email in their job and perhaps looks a couple of things up for their work, and is active on a social media platform or two, and reads a few blogs, the average internet user sees, just on the internet, 490,000 words a day. That's more words than the longest novel you've ever read, probably. It's more words than there are in War and Peace. Now, add to that radio, podcasts, music lyrics, TV, text messages, adverts, and normal human conversations... Add to that images and video, visual content rather than textual. Put it all together, and I think it's fair to say that we are a people who are utterly deluged with stuff. We have content coming at us. We have more stuff coming into our ears and to our eyes than any other generation in the history of the world. Now, there might be lots of things to, to celebrate and be thankful for and all of that, but I think it makes reading today's passage quite challenging. 
You see, in Deuteronomy 4, God gives his people one big command several times. It comes up seven times in our passage. It's the same word in Hebrew. It's translated various different ways in English. It's there in verse 2, where it's translated keep. It's there in verse 6, where it's translated observe carefully. It's there in verse 9, where it's translated be careful. It's there in verse 15, when it's translated watch yourselves. You see, Moses in this passage is teaching the Israelites God's word. And positively speaking, he tells them that they must keep it. That is, they are to pay careful attention to it, to think about it, to dwell on it, to believe it, to obey it. And in verse 9, Moses tells the people that they are to teach it to their children and grandchildren and make sure they keep it too. Positively, they must keep it. But negatively, they have to be on guard. They've got to watch themselves. They've got to be careful. They've got to be on the lookout against anything that would draw them away from the words of God. Now, do you see how that is a bit of a challenge for us in our own culture? We have so many words coming at us that to keep God's words and to guard ourselves against words that would take us away from God is is something of a challenge. And so we need to know this morning, why is that so important? If that is our task too as Christian people to keep God's words and to guard ourselves against things that would keep us away from God, well, we need motivation, don't we? We need help to do that because it's very hard in our day. So we need to know why are the words of God so crucial? Why is it so important to listen to God's word in the Bible and so harmful to listen to other words which might come our way and lead us away from God? And if you're not a Christian, you need to know the answer to this too. Our society today has various different opinions on the Bible, which range from it being helpful guidance to total irrelevance to dangerous hate speech. What is this book we're reading, and why should we pay attention to it, a word written 2,000 years ago and more, in a world full of content which seems more contemporary, more relevant, more immediate, more tailored to our needs? Well, that's the question we're going to answer today, or try. Uh, We are listening to Moses speaking to the Israelites on the cusp of entering the promised land. And although we're in a very different context and a very different stage of salvation history, yet the same God is addressing us as we read his words, and he has very similar things to say to us as we think about listening to his word today. And so let's dive in and think first of all about the joy of listening to the speaking gods. The first thing we learn from these verses is that the word of God brings life. Look at verse 1 with me. Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and the laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that uh, you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Now, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember the context of these verses, hopefully. This is the second generation of Israelites, the children of those who were brought out of Egypt, who heard the law at Mount Horeb and were brought right to the brink of the land at Kadesh Barnea. And we saw last week that that first generation were the ones who had failed to listen to the word of God at the last possible moment. They'd refused to believe that God was with them and that he could fight and defeat the Anakites who were living in the land of Canaan. And so Moses here urges this next generation not to make the same mistake. He's about to tell them to go in. More than that, he's going to explain how they are to live once they're in the land. In Deuteronomy, he's going to give them a rich and full and comprehensive law, 
which covers the full spectrum of life, from temple worship to marriage, from parenting to finance, from bird's nests to building regs. Seriously, it is all in there. And Moses says, if you do these things, you'll live. Now, we're going to explore that idea much more next week. What what does Moses mean by that? We'll see in what way the people will live if they obey this word, and we'll see how it applies to us under the new covenant. But just for today, I want us to note that we mustn't misread this. I think it's easy to misread this. Moses isn't saying, if you obey and you reach a certain standard of compliance and obedience to God's word, then he'll reward you with life. As if this is some kind of test, as if obeying God's word is a test, some kind of hoop to jump through or a bar to clear in order to get life. Like you might say to your child, if you do your exam revision every night this week, I'll let you play video games all Saturday or I'll buy you a yacht or however it works in your house. That that is not what's going on here. Remember that God's design is that his people will live in his land as his people. They will be his representatives, his holy nation, his treasured and special possession. Just like in the Garden of Eden, they are supposed to be his image so that people will look on them and see God reflected back at them. And so God's ways, his laws, his words, this is not an arbitrary test that the Israelites have to pass and then he'll give them life. No, these words are the very means to take hold of that life. If they listen, And they obey by their very obedience. God will bring them into the good land and establish them there and give them long life. It's less like saying, if you revise really hard, I'll reward you. And more like saying, if you eat well and exercise daily, you'll get fit. Do you see the difference? By listening, by active faith, by careful obedience, God is going to guide his people into his land and give them a good and long life. These are good, healthy life-giving words and laws and decrees. But we mustn't think this is just mere guidance, that this is just some practical tips, some helpful life advice. No, listening to God's word is about loyalty to the God of life. So look at verse 2. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Do you see that the Israelites there have to submit to God's words. They have to be loyal to him, not to add to them because they don't think they're good enough, not to take away from them because they think some of the words are irrelevant or uncomfortable or outdated or strange. No, they are to trust God that he knows best. They're to submit their judgment to his. They are to be loyal to him. And in the next couple of verses, we see the alternative to that. What happens when people have been disloyal? Verse 3. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. Moses refers us there back to an incident which is recorded in Numbers 25. Moabite women were sent into the Israelite camp to try and seduce the Israelite men and lead them to worship their God, the Canaanite fertility god Baal. And so they were drawn away from loyalty to God. They turned away from listening to the the words of the God of life in order to uh, to listen to the words of their new wives. And those who did were punished by death. Because they did not cling to the God of life, they did not 
consider God's words worth listening to. They were not interested in that point in being his people, in imaging God to the world. Rather, they wanted to be just like the world, to go along with what everyone else was doing. And so they died under God's punishment. But those who held fast to the Lord, who clung to him, who listened to his words, lived. Because they expressed covenant loyalty to the God of life. And they found that his words, when they obeyed them, were trustworthy and true and life-giving. Listening to the speaking God brings life. As well as that, it brings wisdom. Look at verses 5 and 6. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What makes a nation great, do you think? What would people in our world say to that question today? What makes a nation great? Financial clout, the size of the territory, the power of its military, the length of its history? Well, God has another definition of national greatness. It's found in wisdom and understanding. And wisdom and understanding, verse 8, are found in the words of God, his righteous decrees and laws. What does Moses mean? What is wisdom? Well, wisdom in the Bible is living life as it's meant to be lived. Understanding how the world works, perceiving the design and a pattern of creation and conforming our lives to it. And Moses says that that is available through listening to the word of God. Now that shouldn't surprise us, should it? After all, the God who made this world knows how best to live in it. Just like the person who invents the gadget is best qualified to tell you how to use it safely and rightly. And so Moses is saying, look guys, if if you would really listen to what God is telling you, and conform your lives to it, uh, your lives would be so different to the world around you that it would be noticeable. People would look over the border at Israel and think, do you know, there's something about these guys. They don't do things the way we do. They have a different way of living. And although it's strange, it, do you know, it really does seem to work. You see how the wisdom that God offers serves his mission. If Israel were to conform themselves to God's word, they would so stand out in the world that people would be drawn towards it. That people would want to know where this wisdom comes from and they would be told by the Israelites, well, it comes from listening to the word of the speaking God. Now, I think there's a, a challenge for us here, isn't there? Because although we're not quite in the same situation as the Israelites, we'll we'll talk about that more next week, this same dynamic is true and expected in the New Testament. As we, as Christian people, listen to God's word, that rich and full and comprehensive word, well, that ought to change how we live. It ought to make us stand out in the world, and our way of life ought to be attractive for its wisdom and its understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that our lives will be free of suffering and struggle. Of course not. And it doesn't mean that everyone who sees our way of life will be immediately attracted to it. Indeed, in the New Testament, we're told that people's first reaction might be so offended uh, because you're implicitly critiquing their way of life by not joining in it with them. But the challenge remains. Could somebody, if you're a Christian today, could somebody looking at the way you live your life see something of the wisdom of God's? Could they look at the way you work and the way you rest, the way you do family life, the way you use your 
phone, the way you relate to your friends, the way you spend your money, the way you talk about your spouse, the way you forgive people. Could they see something different to the way they live? And could they begin to say, well, it's weird, but there's something to it. There's something wise about that. There's something good about that. Could, could people say that about us, about you, do you think? Or is our Christian faith just a, a mental add-on to a way of life which is completely indistinguishable to the way, the way the rest of the world works, the way the rest of the world lives? That's something to chat about in growth groups perhaps this week. But I'm encouraged that this dynamic really does work. One of our trainees was saying this week that, that many of their friends... Uh, had lived the full university experience of sex and drugs and rock and roll, uh, and rather looked down on Christians for being rather dull and boring and not enjoying life to the full. But later on, a couple of years after they graduated, after they'd surveyed the mess of their lives, they admitted to feeling rather envious of those Christian friends whose lives seemed much more ordered and simpler and happier. Our lives will not be perfect, of course not. But it is still true that God's ways are ways that generally work in our world. I hope that's not a too controversial thing to say. And so here is the second joy of listening to the speaking God. It brings wisdom. And thirdly, it brings relationship. We see that in verse 7. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? It's often said that our culture is a culture that is lacking in and craves intimacy. We crave acceptance and love. We want to be seen and heard and known and loved by another person, don't we? And yet it's very hard to get that intimacy in our world, I think. Perhaps we feel the need to hide aspects of our character away from people because they're not very attractive. And we fear people would push us away if they knew what we were really like. Or perhaps we crave relationship with another person who doesn't seem that interested in us. Or we connect with people, but we find someone with whom we click and we get along really well, but time or distance or disaster keep us apart. Add to that the last two years of pandemic and isolation. Add to that the proliferation of social media apps which give us the thrill of connection with none of the joy of true intimacy. And we can quickly see that ours is a culture which is crying out for relationship to know and be known. Well, Moses tells his people there in verse 7 that the words that they are hearing are not just a means to life, not just a guide to wisdom, but an invitation to relationship. God is calling his people to listen because he wants to speak to them. He wants them to know him. He wants them to be his covenant people. And so in his word, he comes close to his people and he invites his people to draw near to him in prayer. And he promises those who express their covenant loyalty to him, who gather around his word, that he will always be ready to hear the cries of their hearts. To drive this point home, Moses reminds them of that first gathering around Horeb, verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. 
And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you're crossing this Jordan to possess. Later on, at the end of the chapter, Moses will reflect on the privilege of that first gathering. Look over at verse 32 with me. Verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. Do do you feel the sense of privilege in those words? No other nation has ever experienced a salvation like Israel's exodus from Egypt. And no other nation has heard the voice of God thundering in holiness and power from the burning mountain and live to tell the tale. And every time the people hear that word of God again, they relive that experience. Every time we hear the word of God again, we relive that experience. The holy, mighty, perfect, infinite, powerful creator God of the universe has chosen you. He's drawn near to you. He's taken time out of his schedule to teach you how to live well, even down to what do you do if you find an empty bird's nest and how you should build a parapet on your roof so people don't fall off. That's in Deuteronomy. Uh, and as he speaks, he invites you to speak back, to pour out your concerns and fears and hopes and praises and requests, and he promises to listen. So here's a question. Why don't we? <laughs> Why do we find it so hard to listen to our God? I do. Do you? I find it hard to listen to God. I find it hard to pray, even though I know all this stuff. Why do we find it so hard to get life and wisdom from him? Why do we find it such a struggle to pray and to enjoy our relationship with him? What is wrong with us? Well, let's see what's wrong with us as we consider the danger of ignoring the speaking God's. Moses said something uh, really quite interesting in verse 12. I don't know if you spotted it. He made the point in chapter 4, verse 12, that the people didn't see God at Mount Horeb. In fact, they didn't see anything. The mountain was covered with smoke and cloud. It was literally obscured. They saw nothing. They only heard a voice. Well, in the next section, Moses is going to explain why that's so significant. It's because of a temptation that the Israelites will face, and which it might surprise us to learn, All of us face. Look with me at verse 15. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And this might seem a bit odd. It might seem very strange to us. Why does God not want his people to make images of people or animals or fish? 
If you've been casually doodling a hedgehog in your notes while listening to this sermon, are you now in mortal danger? Looking at my kids. Uh, Well, no, I don't think so. The key thing to realize is that this is the idolatrous practices of the nations around them. The Egyptians, you you may know from school, worship gods using images of things in the natural world. Cats and jackals and crocodiles and beetles. They didn't quite believe that cats and jackals were divine, that they were gods, but they thought that their gods could be represented by those things. There was something a a bit cat-like about the goddess Bastet, that the god Anubis was a, a bit like a jackal. And so they could make an image of those things and that that would be a good way of representing their gods or goddesses and an appropriate way to worship them. Their little statue was a way to connect with their gods. And over time, the statue itself would become very precious to them because it was a way of feeling like their gods were very near them. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? And so that god says, no. You must not treat me that way. You cannot use an image of anything in creation to worship me. And you see why? It's because when he revealed himself, verse 15, he didn't use an image. The people did not see anything when God revealed himself to them because there is no image in creation. There is no thing in creation that will do justice to God the creator. God is the creator. He's not part of this creation at all. In fact, did you notice that the language in verses 16, 17, 18 is very similar to the language we read in Genesis of the account of God's creation? It sounds a bit like those early chapters in Genesis where God creates all those things, the animals on earth, the birds that fly, the creatures that move, the fish that swim. All these things are part of God's created world. He invented the animals and the insects and the fish and the birds. And so trying to represent God as a crocodile, or a beetle, or as they actually did, a calf, is wholly wrong. It would be like saying that you're best friends with the inventor James Dyson because you bow down before one of his vacuum cleaners. It's twisted, it's inappropriate, it's insulting to limit the creator by worshipping his creation. You see, God has revealed himself through words. He's a speaking God. As one author's put it, one author puts it, the Bible's spirituality is about the ears, not the eyes. God has made it such that language, human words, are a fit vehicle for his revelation. That's how he comes near to us, in his words. The God who spoke his whole world into being can be understood through his own words about himself. But images, representations of God which reduce him to our level which seeks to limit the creator so we can understand him better, to encapsulate him and trap him as something in the creation and say, well, that's God is like this, isn't it? No, that must never be. In a similar way, similar way the Israelites must not bow down to the sun and the moon and the stars, verse 19. When you look up at the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. The uh, other nations at the time had a slightly different relationship with the heavenly bodies than they did with the animals and the other creatures. The gods and goddesses they worshipped could be represented by animals, but they didn't really think that Anubis really was a jackal. But both the Egyptians and the Canaanites really did worship the sun and the moon and the stars as gods. And again, God says no. 
And do you see why in verse 19? It's because he has apportioned those things to all the nations under heaven. That is, the sun and the moon and the stars are God's gift to the whole world. Everyone on the planet can look up and enjoy the night sky or the warmth and light of the sun. Don't look at the sun, but you, you, can, you can enjoy it. It's for everybody. It's a gift of common grace. But compare that with what God says about himself in verse 20. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. You see, the sun and the moon and the stars are for everybody. But God is for Israel, and Israel is for God. There is a unique and a special covenant relationship here that is not shared by the other nations. And so God's point, I think, is this. Why would you want to be like the other nations who worship the sun and the moon when you have a unique covenant relationship with the God who made you and made the sun and the moon and you can still enjoy the sun and the moon while still worshipping God? Why would you want to be like everybody else? How boring is that? When you have a unique relationship with a God who made everything. I hope that makes sense, but we might be thinking... Yes, but this is crazy, isn't it? This is ancient history. Sure, we can see why Israel might have been needed to be warned against making statues of beetles and bowing down to Orion or whatever, but it's nothing to do with us, is it? And yet consider what it is that's tempting the Israelites. They're being tempted to worship things in creation. The word worship might not mean that much to us, so let me define it. Worship is a combination of a few things. It means affection, devotion, attention, and trust. Affection, what do I love? Devotion, what do I give myself to? What do I give things up for? Attention, what am I listening to? And trust, what do I rely on? Affection, devotion, attention, and trust. Put all those together, you get the word worship. Now, the Israelites attempted to transfer their affection and devotion and attention and trust from the speaking creator God to things within the creation, things that can be seen and touched, things that everyone around them is also giving their affection and devotion and attention and trust. And so what would that look like for us today? Now, it might not look like worshipping the sun and the moon or making statues of lizards. But what is everybody else giving their affection and devotion and attention and trust to What visual, tangible, created thing is occupying the hearts and minds of those in our city and our schools and our universities and our culture? What are we relying on to make sense of our world and give us meaning and guide us through life? Well, I can think of many examples. Perhaps it is a kind of religious worship that involves images and rituals and statues and practices. Perhaps it's trust in scientific progress to help us understand our world and solve all our problems. Perhaps it's going to the polls and making sure the people with the right views are in power. Perhaps it's following celebrities on social media, hanging on their every word, filling our minds with images of their beauty. Perhaps it's spending lots of money following a sports team all over the world, gathering with people all dressed in the ritual clothing of replica kits, singing songs of praise, and basing our emotional state on whether they've won or lost. Perhaps, as somebody told me this week, is becoming more popular among younger people, it's regulating our mood with the use of crystals, or explaining our behavior by the star sign we were born under, or finding healing in nature. 
Now, none of those things are bad in themselves because they're created things and they're God's good gift to creation. Science is good, education is good, sport is good, crystals are really pretty. (laughs) But if we transfer our affection and our devotion and our attention and our trust to those things, if we're clinging on to something near and visible and tangible in order to find meaning and life and hope, we're doing exactly the same as what the Israelites were tempted to do. And here's what we're doing. We are turning away from the life and wisdom and relationship that is offered us in God's words. And therefore, we turn towards death and folly and estrangement from the God who made us. That's what Moses says in verse 21. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross this Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan. But you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. So be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Here's another heartbreaking reminder that because of their previous sin, Moses is going to bear the judgment of God, and he warns them that they're going to face it too if they forget this covenant. They do not guard themselves. They turn aside to the idolatry of the nations around them. They too will come under the judgment of God. And that's because of who God is. There are two great descriptions of God in this passage. The first one is in verse 24. God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, we might recoil slightly at those descriptions. We might think it's all a bit unnecessarily scary. And anyway, isn't jealousy a bad thing? We mustn't confuse jealousy with envy. Envy is wanting something that isn't yours. Jealousy is being protective of something that is. If I'm envious of another man's wife, that is bad. If I'm jealous for my own wife, if I would like her to remain my wife, and I'm concerned that she not be harmed or led astray by another, then that is good. Now, obviously, human jealousy can very quickly become controlling and sinful, but but God's jealousy is perfect and pure. And God is presented in the Bible as a husband who has given everything for his bride, his people. As a father who is utterly dedicated to his son. And so his jealousy means that he will fiercely protect his bride, his son, from enemies who want to lead him, her, her astray. Towards them, towards those enemies, his wrath will become a consuming fire. But if the Israelites become his enemies if they're unfaithful to him, if they abandon him, if they turn to idolatry, then God is not going to show favoritism. If they become like the other idolatrous nations, they'll fall under the same judgment. What's that judgment going to look like? Well, that, I think, is a huge surprise in this passage. Let's look at the judgment together in verse 25. After you've had children and grandchildren and lived in the land a long time, If you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. See in verse 26 there, Moses calls heaven and earth to the divine courtroom. Do you see the irony there? 
the very things that Israel worshipped instead of God are called on by God their creator to witness what will happen next. And what happens next is that the covenant goes into reverse. God had promised to, give, uh, to bring his people into a good land, to make them a great people, to give them long life under his blessing. But if this generation or another generation turn aside from him, they are not going to be the ones to enjoy the fulfillment of that promise. They instead will be a small people scattered among the nations, destined for a short life and swift destruction. And if we consider this from God's point of view, we, we realize that that must be the case. Israel were meant to be a people who bore the name of God and reflected his image to the nations to be so distinct from the people around them that they would draw people in who would wonder at their wisdom and their understanding. But if they began to behave in precisely the same way as those nations, worshipping the same gods, living in the same ways, then they simply cannot be the people that God is looking for. Anybody looking in at them would not only see their own folly and idolatry reflected back, they would see that same folly and idolatry attached to the name of Yahweh. The people who were meant to bring glory to God would bring shame to him instead. The people whom God had chosen would choose to identify themselves with the nations and with their idols. And as we saw in Deuteronomy 32 a few weeks ago, God in his judgment will just give them over to that decision. If they want to belong to the nations, then to the nations they will go. But there is more to the judgment, more to the handing over. Look at verse 28. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. Now, do you see the surprise there? What is the punishment for Israel's idolatry? The answer is more idolatry. Do you see that? They have turned from the speaking God to the things of creation, things that cannot speak, words of life or wisdom or relationship, and in judgment, God just hands them over to that decision. If they want to worship the gods of the nations, then that's what they'll do. They will look at the things of creation to give them meaning, to make sense of the world, to guide them and give them life, and they will get nothing back. Do you see, this is the flip side of what we saw earlier about God's word. We saw there that obeying God's word is not an arbitrary test such that if you obey enough, God will grant you life and wisdom and relationship with him. No, God's word is so good that following it is the way to life and wisdom and relationship with him. Trusting and obeying God is not a way to earn a ticket to the good life. It is the good life. And the reverse is true of idolatry. It's not that God has just arbitrarily decided that idolatry is wicked and one day he'll punish people for it. It's that idolatry is bad for us. It might feel pleasurable, it might gain the approval of people around us, but it traps us in hopeless dependence on things that cannot do us any good. Man-made gods of wood and stone that can't even smell, are useless, and they can't do us any good. See that? I wonder how many people in our world actually know that and actually feel that. I wonder if you're not a Christian today, whether, whether you feel that a bit. You give all you have to a career and it feels empty and hollow when you get a promotion. You emerge from an hour of scrolling through images on your phone with a sense of weary self-disgust. You finally get to experience that thing, that experience that everyone says you've got to try before you die and you find it drab and dissatisfying and you find yourself longing for more. 
you win a victory for your political cause only to find that nothing has really changed. If you're living a lifestyle that you, you sort of know that God wouldn't really approve of, and you've ever had the thought that you'd better be careful because one day God might judgment, judge you for it, then consider this thought. Consider that you might be experiencing the judgment of God already. If you're not a Christian this morning, how would it be, do you think, if you could live exactly the same life you're living now for the rest of eternity? Would you take that offer? Or would you be very seriously tempted to call it hell? So where do we go from here? If we are a people who have heard the word of the living God, then we are a people who are invited to life, to wisdom, and to relationship with him. That's an amazing privilege. And yet, if we are people who have ignored that God, who have turned instead to idolatry and sin, then we are guilty of insulting and mistreating the God who made us and liable to his judgment. And you may be handing, it over to, handing us over to it already. And that's all of us, isn't it? That's all of us. So what hope is there? Well, that brings us finally to the sovereign grace of the speaking God. Look at verse 29. But if from there, those nations, we are scattered, you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your hearts and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. I once went on a weekend away with a few Christian friends to stay in a guest house in North Wales. Their house was run by a lovely Christian couple who had been very kind to us. But one of my friends, a guy called Tim, uh, had, was just having one of those days where everything went wrong. It was a wet day, apparently in North Wales. Can you believe it? Uh, and as he took his coat off and hung it on the hook, it fell off and landed on our host's suede shoes that were underneath the hook. He said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. And they said, no, don't worry, it's fine. We were shown upstairs to our rooms. The boys' room had bunk beds in it. And Tim said, bagged you the top bunk and jumped up to it without using the ladder. And there was an awful snap and the wooden guardrail split in two. And so he sheepishly went downstairs with like two halves of this splintered wood to say sorry. And then later, as we were having tea, which had been cooked for us, he knocked his plate of food off all over the floor. And he was just sitting with his head in his hands, reflecting on his life choices And he said, eventually, oh, well, at least God will forgive me. And one of my other friends said, quick as a flash, it's amazing grace, Tim. It's not ludicrous grace. (laughs) Now, now she was joking, because ludicrous grace is exactly what this is, isn't it? Last week, we saw the relentless grace of God, and it just keeps coming. This second generation has started off well, but Moses foresees a time when they and the generations after them will do exactly the same thing as their forefathers. They'll turn aside to idols, they'll abandon the covenant, they'll ignore God's word, and they'll destroy themselves. Yet God will not give up, will he? And again, that's because of who he is. Here is the second great description of, verse, uh, of God in this passage. Verse 31, he is a merciful God. In verse 31, do you see, we see him absolutely refuse to do what his people have done. They will abandon him, but he will not abandon them. 
They will behave in self-destructive ways, but he will not destroy them. They will forget his covenant, but he will not forget his covenant. You see, God is unlike us in many ways. When he makes promises, when he makes covenants, he's utterly committed to them through thick and thin. He's promised that he will make Abraham into a great nation. He's promised that he will be his, with his people and he will be their God. He has promised that his firstborn son will be a source of blessing for all nations, and that means they will. Somehow, God is going to make this work. You see, in our world, we are surrounded by people whose words let us down, aren't we? Who say one thing and mean another who lie to us, who make commitments with good intentions but can't follow them through. We walk among the ruins of a thousand broken promises, but that is not how God works. The word of the Lord endures forever. And yet Deuteronomy leaves us with attention. When will this happen? When will God make good on his covenant promises? When, verse 29, the people turn back with all their heart and all their soul. When, verse 30, they return to God and obey his voice. When the people are once again willing to be a faithful covenant partner. When they are willing to listen to the words of life, to turn back from their idols, to submit their hearts to God once again. Then will God will once again welcome them back and back into covenant with him. They will once again be the image of God and the light of the world and his chosen possession. But we have to ask, well, when is that going to happen? How can a people who repeatedly break covenant possibly turn their hearts back to God? And how can a people who are bound to worship idols in judgment be set free to listen once again to the words of life? In Psalm 115, it says that those who trust in idols will become like their idols. And if their idols are dead things that cannot see and cannot hear... How will the people who worship them ever see and hear the living God? How will they ever awaken their hearts to hear the word of God once more? Deuteronomy just leaves us with the tension. But as we conclude, we get to see the fulfillment. Would you turn with me to John chapter 8, please? The uh, page should be on the screen. I can't read it. 107.4, thank you. John chapter 8. John 8, verse 31. Jesus is speaking. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. To see how Jesus gathers up all the threads of what we've been seeing today. He is the one who speaks the very words of God, the words that bring life and wisdom and relationship. He was speaking the truth. He is the one who is the true son of God, the one who always listens to his father, as he says in, in verse 38, the one who keeps covenant, the one who's never turned away to idols, and therefore, verse 35, he has a permanent place in God's family. He will never be cast away from God's. 
because he has no guilt. He has no idolatry, no sin to spoil his relationship with his father. But all other people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are slaves to sin. We cannot turn our own hearts back to God. We cannot make ourselves alive. We cannot force ourselves to listen to God. And all our attempts to get back into God's good books inevitably descend into idolatry. Yet Jesus here says, yeah, but I'm going to set you free. He promises to give us idolatrous sinners the same status that he enjoys. Life in his father's house, in his father's family forever. He promises to forgive us our idolatry by taking the judgment on it on himself on the cross. He promises to change our hearts by giving us the same spirit that dwelt in him. He promises to help us listen once more to God's word, to begin to live lives of wisdom and intimate relationship with the God who made us. He promises to make us fit to live with him in his new creation when all the sin and idolatry and sadness and foolishness will be banished forever. I don't know where you are with the Lord just now. I don't know what your relationship with God is. It could be that you're a Christian who is thoroughly enjoying the words of life and seeing the wisdom of walking in his ways. It could be that you're trusting in Jesus but you're aware that you are sorely tempted by the idols of the world, that you know that your life isn't really much different to those around you, and you're not living out your identity as a member of God's people. It could be that you're a Christian, but life is just really, really hard at the moment, and you're struggling to believe that, that God is on your side. It could be that you're not a Christian, and you've not yet turned your heart towards God, but you feel the hopelessness of your situation, the emptiness of your idolatry, and you fear the consuming fire of God's judgment. Well, whoever you are, whether you fit into some of those categories or all or none, the solution is the same. Turn to Jesus. He is near when we pray. His words offer life and wisdom and relationship with him because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the true Israelite, the one who always obeys, has won our forgiveness and his Holy Spirit can set our hearts free from our idolatry. Let's do that now, shall we? Let's pray. Our Father, we are sorry for our sin and our idolatry. We're sorry for when we haven't listened to you. We're sorry for when we've turned our affection, our devotion, our attention, our trust from you to creative things to give us meaning and life and guidance. We've been fools, Father, sorry. Father, thank you that you bear with our foolishness and you pursue us with your grace. Thank you that you have promised in Jesus to bring us to the new creation despite our sin because of the obedience and the grace of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would set us free, that Jesus would set us free and grant us that permanent place in the Lord's, in, in your family. Please, if there are people in this room who need to do that for the first time, would they do that? And for those of us who've been following you uh, perhaps for many years and are still tempted by sin and are still finding life very hard and are still tempted by idolatry, help us to turn to Jesus often. Help us to come back and hear your words. Help us to encourage each other with the words of life. Help us to pray 
and to express our intimate relationship with you that we have not earned, but that you have freely given. Thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.